0: This edition of Class Talkers features a very interesting and timely conversation with communication professor Kristen Blinney, who has just published a book on yoga. Dr. Blinney's new book traces this South Asian phenomenon as a religion, a way of exercise, and all the way to its adoption in America as a kind of lifestyle craze. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you've taken the time to tell us about your latest project, Kristen, which is Pop culture yoga. Yes. A remix. It's an actual book that you've uh, you're about ready to publish.
1: That's true. Yeah. So I, pop culture yoga remix. It's a it's a monograph, an academic work that I've been nurturing for some time. I actually wrote my dissertation. Uh, it was a, a project called Communication as Yoga, where I was looking at yoga communication as a practice of yoga. But this uh, book project takes me in a totally different direction because it's really looking at the ways in which we come to understand and define yoga within popular culture. And so when I call it a remix, I'm talking about all the different ways, like a, like a good old mixtape, uh, that we take original ideas and then change them up by bringing in new cultural concepts in a multitude of hybrid forms.
0: Well, this is a Eastern culture, I would think, a South Asian culture. Isn't that right? Am I right about the derivation of yoga and yogis and gurus (laughs) and that phenomenon that seemed to have been imported into the United States by the Beatles back in the 60s?
1: Okay, so yeah, so yoga is absolutely an Indic cultural tradition originating in South Asia. Though there are certainly some people that uh, argue that yoga has origins in Egypt, but I think that that's a, a pretty controversial and contested at this point by many scholars in the field. But as a yogic yogic tradition, has a, its roots in Buddhism and Hinduism and other non-Brahmanical groups, also Jainism. And it was imported into the United States, but it's most often thought about in some different waves of the ways in which it was imported. So you can see it coming in in early English language translations of the Bhagavad Gita, which inspired thinkers like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Mm. David Thoreau. So you see its first kinds of origins into this country through colonial translations. And then it finds its way, of course, into the, as as you mentioned, with the Beatles in 1968, as a kind of fringe movement as part of the subcultures. All the gurus, after an immigration ban was lifted, started coming in and sharing information at that time, creating a whole bunch of different kinds of yoga. But more often than not, uh, the beginning of kind of modern American yoga is often cited as coming over in 1893. In the World Parliament of Religion in Chicago when Swami Vivekananda, as part of an anti-colonial mission, came over to the United States to talk about Hinduism and in doing so also started a lecture tour uh, that focused on yoga, among other aspects.
0: I remember that uh, one of my public relations students talked about the fact that public relations started in India as uh, the Indians uh, and British were trying to recruit uh, soldiers for World War I. And that also started the beginning of the end of uh, the beginning of the independence movement in uh, India. And a lot of uh, Indian culture began to be exported and recognized as being legitimate in its own right rather than uh, something that was a a, coloniz- a colony phenomenon from Britain.
1: Okay? Well, in keeping with that, I mean, India, when I think about India's uh, colonial history and and particularly when I think about yoga, it's really tangled up together. And the yoga has this, you know, thousands of year old practice that has taken a lot of different avenues as far as how it's been thought about again it has a lot of different roots and different types of techniques and different goals or aims even which is all still contested too but you add in the colonial history where you see yogis are are really put forward as in negative stereotyping, even banned. There's this uh, almost of kind of a. There is a military connection in the sense that, they, that in the colonial, in the colonial era, yogis were depicted as these like the freak show or the, the vagabonds or the the, the savage mercenaries. They have all kinds of labels that we see put forward uh, with this idea of the wandering aesthetic, the sadhu, ah. practitioner, which has was an interesting stigma that I think yoga has, has had to fight to overcome, I think, even for many in contemporary India and the ways in which it has been exported out of that con- that subcontinent into the United States. And then it's become a, this kind of fitness phenomenon here. And then it's been re-exported back to South Asia. And it's taken on uh, different meanings in interesting ways.
0: Well, I also think of Gandhi having used nonviolent means um, to expel the British from the subcontinent after World War II in 1947 when India got its independence. Uh, it was credited to Gandhi using nonviolent uh, Eastern type um, resistance uh, to British rule that ultimately led to the independence of uh, India and the creation of Pakistan separately.
1: Well, one of the things that I, one of the tensions that I think I see a lot when when we talk about yoga in, a, in an in academic context and even in popular culture is this kind of tension between this idea of Eastern and Western, uh, what is constructed as Eastern, uh, as a kind of a India, as this, this place of spirituality, and this Western culture as this place of progress, and these two have been really juxtaposed against each other in, 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 somewhat problematic ways, but I think that as particularly with when Swami Vivekananda came over in 1893, he kind of reinforced this idea of this, this Eastern versus Western mentality, even at the same time he was kind of talking about yoga as a, a universal spiritual practice that anyone of any faith could adopt, because of course that world parliament of religion was one of the earliest like interfaith gatherings, um, even though it had its roots in... And, and and Christian Christianity, right? So it's a, it's a, to me it's it's this, this idea of Gandhi's role in the conversation about yoga, these principles of nonviolence, these stereotypes about the the violent yogi that was put forward in the colonial area. All of, all of these hmm. create this really complex and contested topic.
0: So what makes it so hot now in 21st century America?
1: I would say that uh, one of the the Debates that comes up at least a lot of the circles that I travel in as far as thinking about yoga teachers and yoga scholars is this idea of cultural appropriation. Uh, Also, maybe more connected to that is who who owns yoga, right? So as I mentioned, I mean, yoga came into this country through the kind of like the the movement, the immigration patterns of people traveling and leaving other countries and and landing here and staying or just visiting and, and taking their teachings in other places too. It had a really strong presence in the the 60s and the 70s, and then it kind of started moving more towards the mainstream in the 80s and beyond as it started infusing its way into kind of more normalizing locations like educational settings or prisons or the military or even gyms and fitness centers. And so one of the things that we see happening here is that there's we we've we've rendered it a kind of devoid of its spirituality right? There's a lot of uh, debate about is yoga a religion. And so if the answer is yes, then we wouldn't want to put it in our public schools, right? So because we have this separation of church and state. But if we say that yoga is not a religion, it's a universal practice that anyone of any faith can adopt, then that changes the conversation. So right off the bat, we have that tension. Who owns it? East, West? And in what way? Do we have this discourse of heritage, meaning we You know, it has this Indic origin that you can't ever change. Or do we have this kind of discourse of innovation, meaning once it enters into this new cultural territory, what right do people have to adapt it uh, in a different time period and location and for different populations? And there's yoga for everything now, you know, the yoga for golfer, the yoga for every kind of health condition you can imagine. There's infinite varieties of branded yoga of all styles. And there's uh, the kind of yogas that I like to call like just the just add yoga. So there's like boxing yoga and tantrum yoga and you, you name it. Any kind of animal that you can domestically add to a yoga practice that exists from kittens to goats to horses to helicopter yoga, you name it
0: and hot yoga.
1: Hot yoga. Yes. So hot yoga uh, is is a really interesting one too that has a lot of uh, mixed response. And so we have all these different types. And so that's a that's one of the debates I think we see a lot with this cultural appropriation. To what level can we divorce it or decouple it from its, uh, its kind of source texts or ancient texts, from the philosophical foundation that yoga has been built from, and make it this kind of fitness... Thing that's very body based. It's very consumption based, and and And
0: the clothing too is important.
1: uh, In this yoga
0: pants, yeah, Uh, you got to dress the part.
1: Co- yoga pants are obviously the part of the controversy. <laughs> I mean, the, just the commodification of yoga in this country is is immense, right? You, you can spend just so much money uh, on different products. So from the yoga pants, to the outfits, to the mats, to the bags, to the props, you name it, There's there's every, it has a pretty direct link to fashion. So lots and lots and lots of brands that are specifically yoga brands to brands that are more well-known fashion labels that have created yoga. Uh, attire
0: like lululemon
1: yes exactly as an example
0: which is also a hot stock
1: and uh uh also controversial in in some of the the previous founders uh the uh, comments about fat shaming and and things that have come Uh, out of that and and i think that part of the problem is the kind of narrow representations that we see in yoga imagery so we typically see the the white thin young highly flexible Uh, typically female, almost always, uh, and then targeting this more middle-upper-class demographic.
0: So is it essentially white middle-class female phenomenon that uh, is just a fad that uh, has been absorbed into the economy of the United States?
1: I mean, I think that yoga, yoga discourses are very slowly shifting about this this targeted demographic but i think that that you know white thin lean flexible however you want to think about it is it's just directly aligned with the kinds of things we see with like women's magazines the ways in which fashion creates these very narrow portrayals of 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 models right and so yoga has also as a industry you know, some call it the yoga industrial complex yes. has really bought in, so to speak, to these mainstream uh, representations. And, and I think a, a pretty problematic ways for for the, the kinds of exclusionary practices and politics that it engages.
0: Well, you've made me think more deeply about it than I ever have or thought I wanted to. But it's something more, it seems to me, because uh, back in my own history, I um, followed the teachings of M-
1: Maharishi Mahesh, Maharishi
0: Mahesh Yogi. Mahesh Yogi yes. Um, who came up with transcendental meditation? When I was a teenager, I had a, a serious uh, anxiety problem, and I tried to um, use uh, transcendental meditation to try to uh, catch hold of my nervous system, and to some extent, it worked.
1: Well, but, and then of course, if you know, you mentioned the Beatles, and it's Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, which right. in '68, which was hit that hit that mainstream press and really brought yoga further into the limelight in this country and uh, so many celebrities have endorsed a transcendental meditation practice in the you know from jim carrey to uh, so many and just david lynch as an example too has a foundation the practices it and I, I would i would put what's interesting to me is i would put transcendental meditation as a kind of modern medi- meditational yoga practice right it's a It's a mantra-based practice, whereas uh, much of the the representations of yoga and the the word itself is is very difficult to define because it has so much complexity to it in, in the Sanskrit language. But most of the yoga we see in this country, when you have images of it, right, you typically think of it as a postural or physical practice, right? Right. I mean, for most people, when you when I say yoga, they think of people contorting like pretzels and <laughs> and <laughs> sweating and doing some kind of workout. When that's just one uh, really small aspect of the the larger tradition.
0: And so you would resent the notion that it's simply a new version of Pilates or Zumba.
1: <laughs> Maybe not resent, but I would I would I would challenge the the kind of the narrow way of that we have defined it in this country. But at the same time, I also recognize that each place and each time period makes the things that it encounters in its own in unique ways. Like It it makes sense to me that within the context of American culture, which is obviously not one thing, it's many things, that we would adopt something that is a commodified fitness-based practice that doesn't, I mean, it's not really that surprising within the landscape of how uh, free market capitalism of works in this country and branding and all the things that go along with it so that's not that that's a critique for some but an innovation for others
0: we're also becoming a very secularized society it seems to me yeah the religion is on the downward slope so perhaps the only part of yoga that is of interest to the vast majority of americans is the physical part
1: Exactly. And I think that that, again, that's not surprising. Uh, Just uh, not that long ago, I mean, here we're in 2019, but in 2016, just to give some more perspective on it, uh, there was a Yoga in America study that was created by the Yoga Alliance and the Yoga Journal. And they estimated that 36.7 million people practice yoga in the United States. And they also estimate that it's a $16.8 billion industry in this country. And like you, I would argue that the, the secularization is, is probably a significant part of that, that trend for many.
0: So is there a way to reignite the spiritualism that yoga was founded upon?
1: I, th- I think many teachers and, and scholars and studios are trying to integrate maybe the more spiritual and philosophical roots of the tradition. The problem is, at least from my perspective, and part of the reason that I took on this book project is that as a communication professor, I was interested in how people come to define this thing we call yoga. And what I started to find, of course, and this didn't surprise me at all, is that While we have some collective consensus on this idea, there's not a whole, whole lot. We have uh, different ideas about its origin as far as how long ago it was created. We have a lot of notions about the types of texts that we should be looking to as the philosophical framework for our traditions, and then even less agreement about what a personal or collective practice would look like in people's day-to-day lives. So for example, It wouldn't be uncommon for someone if you say, well, how long ago did yoga, when did it start? Somebody might say 5,000 years. You speak to the next person and they say, well, no, actually, it's 2,500 years ago. You speak to another person and they might say, well, no, it actually, modern yoga as we know it has only really come about in the last 150 years. And so while those are the kind of categorical time periods that people most often call to, they have disagreements about that. And so right away, you have that. And then the next level of disagreement is, what is your practice, what is it comprised of in your day-to-day basis? For some, it's the secular postural practice. For others, it might be like transcendental meditation. It's a very, it looks very different in practice. For others, it's a whole bunch of other things too. So how do we take one term, and we give it so much nuance as far as how people define it, and then expect that we can understand it. This is my. This has been my uh, question that I've been asking.
0: And you have, obviously, as an academic, you're taking a more um, incisive view of its origins and its effects on behavior, and looking at how people communicate using it, or how it is a form of communication in and of itself.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think my earlier work was looking at the yoga as a. Practice uh, communication as a practice of yoga. So, how could we communicate in such a way that would align with more uh, the philosophies of yoga? But in this this work, I'm really looking at how people come to take ownership over their definitions of yoga, and it it's taken me into some interesting territory as far as arguments about culture, whether it's a singular thing or whether it's a you know a multi you know a multiplicity. Whether we can think about, you know, who has the right to define yoga and to say, this is good yoga versus bad yoga, good yogi versus a bad yogi, uh, acceptable, not acceptable practice. This this is the, the debates that I was most interested in. Who has the authority to make the claims? It's the art of claiming in regards to yoga.
0: So you wouldn't automatically go back to the subcontinent to find those answers.
1: I wasn't wasn't looking there because I I think there's a lot of scholars that are doing amazing work in that area that are looking at the root text, that speak the the languages, that can actually do that early textual work. My focus has been on what happens once it's landed in this cultural context, which has already uh, got so many different layers to it as well. So what is, as a practice of translation and as a hybrid form, what does it what what's it doing in the United States or in North America more broadly?
0: So, what will your book attempt to describe or explain?
1: So, the way that the the book is structured is I I, I look at debates first and foremost around definitions more broadly as I as I was mentioning. So, what does this word mean to people? So, for some, they might. They use the word yoga as, as synonymous with the, the term asana. And asana is, is loosely translated as seat. And it was originally used to depict like the ways in which you would prepare your body to sit for meditation. But in this current practice or the contemporary landscape, we, we talk about it as a kind of you know, a, a postural practice. It's the different movements you would do at a yoga studio, asana. Uh, so some people use that interchangeably. Right off the bat. And so I start there looking at how we might complexify this understanding, not just as posture, but looking at the historical conversations about it. And then I move into discussing the the industry itself all the different ways you can spend money (laughs) on yoga classes and cruises and retreats you name it there's something for you that you can spend money on in the realm of yoga there's
0: always a capitalist imperative (laughs) in the united states
1: right so i really i really kind of danced down the the path of stereotypes and looking at the kind of economics of yoga in a way that is maybe not true to everyone's experience but gives kind of a fictional representation of what it might look like uh, if, if we had embodied this stereotype that we see so well, often. Well, my wife
0: was involved in uh, a couple of different uh, of, uh, yoga groups uh, in Saratoga County, and, uh, but she would only go when her friend would go with her. And it seemed for her to be as much a social experience as it was a, a fitness effort, a flexibility effort, mm-hmm. an and effort I- at adopting a better lifestyle.
1: And I think that yoga has has definitely been put into the the camp of being a lifestyle practice in this in this country, and we can see that movement as as like the Yoga Journal, which came into popularity and has grown over time. It's you know the glossy color magazine that you see it now, uh, but it started out with a you know a black and white, more like a newsletter look. Uh, it's so yoga as a lifestyle. Is, is pretty directly related to this, you know, lifestyle, fitness, wellness industries in this country more than, say, the this, this spiritual religious, even though we do see like the tinges of new age spirituality uh, being put into the the fitness places. And, and it come, can come down to just something as simple as like decor in a studio. And then this is where the cultural appropriation comes in, the ways in which you know, maybe uh, American teachers and studios are cherry-picking cultural artifacts and maybe don't know the full history or what they mean or even how to use the the Sanskrit terms properly in their practice. And so the call is to honor the roots a little more clearly, but also to create more inclusive spaces. Yoga has not, in this country, been a very inclusive space for a whole, whole bunch of people, whether it be uh, black yogi practitioners or... LGBT yoga practitioners, among a whole host of other populations.
0: So it has been an upper-middle-class phenomenon then.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you have to have the resources to to take the classes. While many studios are starting to offer free or community-based classes, I mean, by and large, I mean, if you go to New York City and you want to take a class, I mean, you're looking at $25 a class or anywhere as, as much as $200 a month or potentially more for unlimited classes, that that's an access issue for a lot of people.
0: So have you ever uh, thought of comparing it to other eastern posture phenomena like uh, tai chi? Is there a relationship between yoga and a- another more far eastern practice like tai chi?
1: I think there's, I think there, I mean, I could absolutely see the value in in the comparison, but I, I, I think we've seen something uh, different happening with yoga in the United States than we might see with like a Qigong or Tai Chi practice in the ways that it's kind of infiltrated the popular culture I mean, it's 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 not uncommon. I mean, most people have heard of yoga, whether they understand what it means or what it is. They have some kind of image of it. It's it's found its way in all the kinds of television shows and series. There's actually yoga-focused series uh, that are like web-based series, and it's in movies. I mean, you name it, commercials are using it for advertisement. And I don't think we have seen tai chi or qigong go quite that far in popular culture. It's there. But uh, not to the same level as, as yoga has captured our imagination.
0: I had a conversation with another one of our colleagues, uh, Rahul Rashtogi, who is from India, and we had a conversation about uh, how this very fast growing South Asian population uh, is having its own economic renewal. It's the biggest uh, democracy on Earth, uh, most populous, and it's becoming uh, very uh, advanced in terms of its own uh, entrance into the 21st century into technology and into education. Uh, Many of the uh, Indian immigrants in this country have become captains of industry themselves. They've been very successful entrepreneurs, and I'm wondering if seeing this phenomenon occur in the United States, either from a distance or because they live in California, so many ideas move from California East. I'm wondering if that's the same cultural phenomenon that has occurred with yoga.
1: Well, it's interesting because, of course, California, I mean, L.A., for many, is considered a, a major yoga hub in this country. But New York has uh, some, has, a, has a historical relationship with yoga, too, in the ways in which people have traveled. Into this country and its earlier history, as far as teachers and centers have concerned. But what's interesting to me about yoga in this country is that is just generally the lack of uh, representation of, of, of South Asian voices in in yoga communities. Which is not to say that they are not existing at all. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's uh it's and this is something that I've that I've heard many people within the community uh, lament and and are working to change is that we we need more uh, South Asian yoga teachers and spaces where South Asian, Asian yoga practitioners are, are welcomed and respected and in ways that that has changed in a lot in the popular culture presentation of yoga in this country.
0: Since you also teach not only in the communications department but also in the philosophy department, I would imagine that uh, philosophy department would welcome the kind of oriental change of pace that yoga could represent versus the occidental form of forms of philosophy that have dominated philosophical thought in the West.
1: I mean I was really excited when I when I joined the Sunyonian community that there was a class in the college catalog that was the philosophy and psychology of yoga. I thought, well, wow, this feels like home uh, that this class would even be present in a philosophy department, as you mentioned. And I think I had the pleasure of of teaching it uh, in in one semester, and it was a great experience because I think students come into that class, they hear yoga, and it's something, again, that they're, they're familiar with and many of them practice or have some experience with. But to actually be able to dive into the tradition is is it was really wonderful to see because it is such a rich philosophical tradition with so many it's if you think of it like a tree and many people do it just has so many branches uh, that come off of this 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 root of yoga that can really change i think people's lives in in for the better whether they actually want to embody or practice it or label themselves as a yogi or whatever whatever their interest is uh, and their, their, their commitment, they have a, a lot of options as far as what they can learn from it. So I think, I, I think it's a valuable addition. I, I would personally argue that every philosophy department should uh, have some uh, approach to Eastern philosophical traditions. And, and, and many do.
0: And I would think that uh, it's, it's important to see what Generation Z uh, is doing with this body of information. Are they absorbing it? Are they adopting it are they embracing it in ways that perhaps baby boomers might like uh, like myself only dabbled in as a youth
1: i mean i it makes me think back to you you asking about the comparison with yoga and say tai chi or qigong and it and we have i think the thing that i was thinking about when you said that that we have the the maybe the most apt comparison is just the rise of kind of the i don't want to say generic but mindfulness Practices, right? Even so, down to the point where we're saying we're commodifying it and calling it mindfulness because <laughs> it's being brought into corporate environments as this, you know, relaxation, anti stress, restore balance, make you more productive as a worker. Uh, exactly. And you know, we're seeing it too in education, right? This this uh, movement towards contemplative pedagogy and practice and and I certainly am, am part of that I do a lot of um, independent studies focused on yoga yoga and meditation at this campus. I do sound meditation sessions on this campus and and I, I think there's some real value because we are seeing a record numbers of students that have um, diagnosable mental health issues, uh, particularly in the realm of anxiety and I think, uh, percentages of studies that have been done are showing such such huge rates of stress that the practices that are designed to cultivate a single pointed attention or monotasking versus the multitasking we've been arguing about for you know this is a great yeah. way to be more productive is really helpful especially because we all are we're living in such a world of distraction right we're, we're training in it all the time like we've become really great at distraction so how do we actually do cultivate the opposite?
0: That's right. So so many of us, because of the, the screen culture that we live in, we're turned into BBs in a bucket, uh, bouncing around with attention spans of uh, a hummingbird, perhaps.
1: <laughs> and, I, yeah.
0: and this, perhaps, is a way to counteract that or learn a different behavior.
1: I think so. I mean, I say this a lot in, in pretty much all of the classes I teach. I, I like to ask the question, like, how do you breathe when life takes your breath away? And I mean that both in the sense of like life takes your breath away because you're so awed by an experience and the beauty and the, the power of it, but also those moments when you feel like you're gasping for air and you just can't take that breath to go on to the next thing. So I really think that meditation practices, mindfulness practices, yoga practices have the capacity to help us breathe when life takes our breath away.
0: So it has a very practical application in the 21st century. It's not simply an ancient religion.
1: Right. I mean, it does. It has it. it has the, a strong foundation of ethical components. So like you said, to the idea of if we look at the, the Yoga Sutra of Pat, Patanjali that, that talks about an eight limb path that many people cite, the, the foundation of that is ethical practices towards yourself and others. And then it moves up this, if you want to think of it as a ladder or a wheel, through the postural practice or body techniques. It looks at the ways in which we breathe, how we limit our distractions through coordinating our senses or sensory withdrawal, helping us focus on concentration, all the way up through meditation and beyond. So there's there's very practical skills that can be developed that can really make a difference, I think, in people's lives.
0: You've sold me on it. (laughs) Thank you very much, Krista. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Kristen Blinney of the SUNY Oneonta Communications and Media Department. This is a podcast called Class Talkers, and I'm Tim Welch.